Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. So what I thought I would do this evening is we're going to go through uh, this passage a few times. Uh, The first time we're going to look at... um, how this passage applied to the people of God then, and then we're going to see how the passage applies to the people of God now, and then we're going to see how this passage applies for people of God in the future. So starting in verses uh, 18 and 19, it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So here we see that God is jealous for his land and takes pity on his people. And God's jealousy is not the same as the jealousy we've all experienced. His jealousy is righteous because he and he alone is worthy of our praise and worship, and desires to be in relationship with his creation. And when his people worship other gods and defile his land, he is justified to either destroy them or to bring them back to himself. It's not a controlling or vindictive jealousy that we're all accustomed to seeing and experiencing in our world. It's a desiring and loving jealousy that knows what is best for the one to whom God is jealous for. God is also now going to relent and send back all the things that he took away in the previous chapter. He brought in the locusts and destroyed the land and the vegetation, and now he is going to send back the grain and the wine and the oil so that his people can be satisfied. And also that the other nations will look at Israel and see how good and loving their God is to them. And they will no longer be a reproach among the nations. In verse 20, Joel writes, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard in the eastern sea and his rear guard in the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will arise, for he has done great things. And here we see God very tangibly driving out the locusts that he sent to the land to destroy it. He's driving them out into the wilderness and into the seas, to the outskirts of the city, where they will die and rot. Next in verses 21 through 25, it says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent to you. In these verses, we see God giving his creation three imperatives or commands. Fear not, be glad, and rejoice. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the, past, for the pastures are green. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice. Why are they called not to fear, to be glad and rejoice? Because the Lord has done great things. The Lord has given them the rain. It's because of the Lord that they are commanded not to fear and to rejoice and be glad. Lastly, in verses 26 and 27, it says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Here we see what Israel's response should be for what the Lord has done for them. Because the Lord has dealt wondrously with them, they will eat plenty and be satisfied, and their response is to praise the name of the Lord. There's no way that they can take any credit for the rain, for the growth of the crops, and for its yield. It's all from the Lord. And as a result of this blessing, Israel will know that the Lord is in their midst, that he is the Lord their God. God is working very tangibly in their land, both by driving out or both by bringing in the destruction from the locusts and also by driving out the locusts and restoring the land. He was in the midst of his people. Now we'll go back through and see how this is for, how this can be for the people of God now. And before we get to this section, uh, it's important for us uh, to be reminded uh, to not always read ourselves into every story as though we are the focus of it. There can be a tendency sometimes to make every verse or story about us. However, we are not the main character of the Bible. Jesus is. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we can learn from every verse and every story but we need to remember that Jesus is the main character in the story, not us. So what can we learn from this section as God's people now, thousands of years into the future from when this was written? Firstly, God is still jealous for his people and takes pity on us. We see this very clearly in the person and work of Jesus. God sent his son into this broken and sinful world, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. God doesn't need us, but he desires to be in relationship with us. And since our sin separates us from him, 
He created a way through his son Jesus for us to be forgiven of our sin through the death of Jesus so that we can enter into relationship with him. And this wasn't some afterthought that he came up with after we sinned, but this was planned before the foundation of the world. Second, we see that God still removes destructive things from our lives. When we enter into relationship with God, there's a lot of pain and heartache that can come with that. Our former selves are being stripped away and our new selves are being revealed. This means that we need to remove the former ways that we once lived. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This passing away of the old self can be difficult and painful. Our old relationships, our old habits, our old desires, those things we did in the flesh will eventually pass away as we are transformed into a new creation that seeks to glorify God in all that we do. And it's only by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can do any of this. Lastly, God does not want us to live in fear, but he wants us to be glad and rejoice in him. Because we are a new creation in Christ, we have a living hope. We don't need to live in fear of anyone or anything, and we can rejoice and be glad in what God has done for us. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have hope in this inheritance of God because of Jesus, not because of anything we've done. In our passage, we get a glimpse of this hope for the people of Israel that Joel's writing to. The Hebrew language uh, is very complex, and when you add in prophetic poetry, it can be sometimes mind-boggling. But by God's grace, he has given us a lot of resources at our disposal to help, uh, to help reveal to us a lot of these nuances that we just might gloss over and pass by if we didn't know what to look for. So looking back in verse 23 of Joel chapter 2, it says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
Now, at first glance, you might read this and just think he's talking about literal rain, which he kind of is. The early and the latter rain are referring to two times during the year that the land gets a few months of rain. Usually the early rain happens sometime in October and ends around November or December, and it helps to kind of prepare the soil, help the seeds start to germinate. And then the latter rain happens in the spring sometime between March and May, and that helps to assure that the crops will be rich and full. Then there's the early rain for your vindication. And in Hebrew, this phrase, early rain, could also be translated as teacher of righteousness. And there's a little debate about this, but we thought it was worth mentioning. The reason this is possible is because in ancient Hebrew, they left the vowels out of words. For them, they knew which which vowels went with the group of consonants, and so they're able to form the words they wanted to communicate. And the context was a big indicator of what words should be there. So this is how they can get teacher of righteousness from the early rain. Rain does not necessarily vindicate people. Jesus does. This is a foreshadowing of who God would send to his people to ultimately vindicate them. The rain he was sending was a temporary reprieve. Jesus is a permanent offer. Jesus is permanent and offers spiritual relief. So the rain was temporary and offered physical relief. Jesus is permanent and offers spiritual relief. This also fits within the style of prophetic poetry. Like Ben had mentioned in uh, the opening sermon to this series, uh, prophecy is kind of like a mountain range, right? Uh, From one perspective, you only see one mountain, but when you change and move perspectives or vantage points, you can see the multiple mountains within this mountain range. Here, the reference to Jesus as teacher of righteousness in relation to rain starts to make sense especially as you take it in light of all of Scripture being one big narrative pointing to Jesus. In the account of Jesus' interaction with uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus being the teacher of righteousness fits in with the greater context of the book. The references to the physical blessings that we've been looking at in verses 18 through 27 and the spiritual blessings that we're going to look at next week in verses 28 to 32 necessitate that it's more than just physical rain but a teacher of righteousness, a Messiah, Jesus, that will vindicate his people. The Israelites wanted temporary physical relief from the destruction that God had sent them. But God was alluding to the fact that they really needed 
spiritual relief from the hardness of their hearts toward God. God was pointing them to the one who could put them on the path to true righteousness. Righteousness that could only come from one person who could ultimately restore their broken relationships with God. And that person is Jesus. Like Ben mentioned in the opening, today is Palm Sunday. And it starts the Passover festival, which is a time when the Jews would remember when the angel of death passed over their homes in Egypt during the final plague before they were led out of Egypt and freed from their slavery to Pharaoh. And on Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the teacher of righteousness, came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey while people gathered together around him, calling out, Hosanna. John records this event in his gospel. He writes, The next day a large crowd had come to the feast, who had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he, has done, that he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they are go- that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So here we see Jesus being sovereign over his creation. He's fulfilling prophecy, and he's entering the city on a borrowed colt, coming as a king, but not like the king that they expected. Jesus came into the city not to establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow Rome and be the leader of the Jews. He came to die on a cross and suffer the penalty of our sin on himself. He came to die the death that we deserve so that when we put our faith in him, we too can have eternal life with the Father. He manifests the righteousness of God in the gospel. We who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God can be justified through the redemption that is found in Jesus if we put our hope and our faith in him. And this future hope, Our future inheritance that is more precious than gold is written about in Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is what the Israelites got a foretaste of when the Lord restored their land. And it's not the things that we get from God. It's God himself. Just as God would be in the midst of Israel, he will dwell with us in the new Jerusalem. Just as the Lord was seen, that was sending the early and the latter rain before, we will be given the spring of the water of life without payment because Jesus paid it all for us. As we come to the table this evening, let us remember what that payment cost Jesus. The great price that he paid on our behalf. His body that was freely given of his own accord. His blood that was shed to cover our sins. He bore our sins and our iniquity on himself so that we can be clothed with his righteousness and enter into eternal life with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son for Vindicating us, God, for, for taking away the destructive habits and patterns of our lives, Lord, and in your mercy and providence, Lord, uh, redirecting, reorienting our hearts to you, God. We come to you this evening, Lord, um, as sinners in need of a Savior, Lord, and as we... <clears throat> Remember uh, this week leading up to your, your death, um, your death on a cross, your burial, and your resurrection, Lord. Help us to, uh, to be reminded uh, to tell the story that you and you alone were able to create a way for us to be reconciled to God. There's no way that we can do it on our own. We are in total dependence and need of you, and so we rejoice in what you have done for us, and we rejoice that one day we will get to see you face to face. Amen.